Hi, this is Ben Lola of Back to the Bible Canada. What does Paul mean when he speaks about creation's groaning in Romans chapter 8? Well, today as we continue our series, The Power of the Gospel, Dr. Newfeld will help us discover the answer. So let's turn in our text to Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22. I wonder what you think about when I use the word groan. If I were to ask you to define or describe a groan, how would you do so? You might begin by talking about what it sounds like, a low growl emanating from the throat, or you might describe what gives rise to a groan, either physical pain or psychological despair. A groan is always a signal that something is wrong, things are not as they should be. I have heard sounds that rise from a human throat, for instance, after a loved one has passed away, that have amazed me, for I was not aware that humans could make these sounds. There is a depth of agony that we can sink to that leaves anyone listening shaken by what they hear. Romans 8 describes three groans. If you've been following this series, you might be tempted to describe Romans 7.24 as a groan. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If we use the word groan to describe that experience, it surely is an expression of anguish. Romans 8, however, uses the word groan on three occasions. Verse 22 describes the groans of nature. Verse 23 describes the groans of believers. And verse 26 describes the groans of the Holy Spirit. For our purposes, I'll take one radio address to plumb all three of these groans. But for now, let's notice that the groaning that goes on in this chapter is not a despairing groan. What we hear are groans of distress, even groans of deep anguish, but the anguish is filled with hope, and in that, we learn a lesson. It is possible to grieve ever so deeply, to feel pain ever so agonizingly, and yet never to lose hope. I picture Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Not only does he weep, but we're also told that he's deeply moved. The Greek word that was used there is a word that is very difficult to translate. It means to experience profound sorrow mixed with anger. And this is how Jesus reacted to the death of his dear friend, even though he was preparing to raise him from the dead. Think of groaning in that sense. Profound sorrow mixed with anger and yet filled with inerasable hope. Is such a thing even possible? Well, yes, it is. And if we allow ourselves to consider the glory to be revealed, as Paul said in Romans 8.18, and yet we allow ourselves to look at the deep valley of the shadow of suffering and death that make up this world and our lives, that is precisely the reality we find ourselves in. But for today, we're not going to be looking at the reality in the lives of believers, but a reality in the created order. And so with Bible in hand, let's read Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul has, in Romans 8.18, been comparing the present sufferings with the future glory to be revealed, but now he moves from the experience of the believer to a reality that's found in the created order. Those of us who are old enough will remember the earlier space launches, the old Apollo spaceships, like the one that landed on the moon. Well, these ships included booster rockets, fuel tanks, and all sorts of things that were all jettisoned after hurling a tiny little space capsule into orbit. Some of us think of eternity in that fashion. 
It's all going to burn, we say. And by that, we mean that all that will remain of the present world are the souls that are saved. Now, just so that we understand, as important as souls are, that's not the biblical picture. God has a plan not just for the individual. He has an eternal plan for the entire creation. But before we go on, we have to ask just what is Paul talking about when he mentions all creation? He can't mean angels because the good ones were not subjected to futility and the evil ones are not longing for the glorious future of God. Secondly, it can't include people. Non-Christians aren't longing for God and Christians are treated in this passage as a separate group. So then what is left is everything else in the physical universe, all animate and inanimate creation. Now look at verse 19. Do you see the words eager longing? In the Greek language, that's one word, and it comes from a root word, which means craning of the neck. Imagine you're in a crowd of people awaiting the Queen of England. If you're five foot nine like I am, you'll find there always is someone who's about six foot one standing right in front of me. So what do you do? Well, you stand on your tiptoes and you lean to the right and to the left and you crane the neck. That means you're acting as if your neck could actually grow or become higher. Why? Because you want to see, that's why. You're anticipating, you're excited, and you're stretching your neck out as far as you can. And that's what creation is doing. It's craning its neck. It's longing for an event which is yet to come. Now, how can that be? Well, we have to understand this as a personification. Remember what Jesus said when the Pharisees were upset that his disciples were proclaiming him as the king. Luke 19, 39 to 40 says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, creation must respond to the arrival of the Messiah. And if the children of God do not give voice, nevertheless, voice must be given to this moment, and creation stands ready. In telling of the future of this world, listen to Isaiah 55, verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, I know that's all a personification, but Paul wants to say there is a longing in creation. In fact, all creation exists for a purpose. Its purpose is for the glory of God. But now here's the stunning part. Do you know what creation is straining its neck for? Well, you might say, I know, it's straining its neck for the second coming of Jesus, but that's not what the text says. In fact, it says it's straining its neck for the revealing of the sons of God, or another way of saying it is this. All creation is straining its neck, waiting in anticipation for Christians to inherit the glory to come, the glory that is promised that they will be elevated to rule and reign with Christ over the creation. Creation is waiting for its rightful ruler to come and to order its existence. It is breathlessly anticipating that moment. Now, before we move on, we need to consider a wider issue from the perspective of the entire New Testament. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7 teaches that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And then, three verses later in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, Peter goes on to teach, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed." And then again, three verses later, we read from verse 13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
Now, simply taken at face value, those verses seem to fit by Apollo rocket analogy. Everything is going to be jettisoned. And after God burns this current order of things to the ground in its place, he replaces it with a new heavens and a new earth. And so, for instance, if I get a new car, I trade in my old one and it's gone. And in its place is a new one different and better than the one that presently exists. Now, in this case, creation would be groaning all right, knowing that it will soon be destroyed and replaced. But most Bible teachers, and I'm included in that group, do not believe that the Bible teaches the annihilation of the present cosmos. When 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 speaks, Peter says, the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. The Greek word for exposed can also mean that it will be laid bare or the idea of being uncovered. The fire Peter speaks of is a purging fire in which all impurities are burned by the purifying work of God and all that is wrong with the creation is exposed and then done away with. Now, to be truthful, there's a debate among Bible teachers, but my interpretation of it fits well with other Bible passages, such as Revelation 21 verse 5, where God proclaims that he is making all things new. So from my understanding, the new heavens and the new earth have a parallel in the newly resurrected body of Jesus. See, on the one hand, Christ's resurrected body was still the same body that he had when he was raised from the tomb. But on the other hand, the disciples strained to recognize him, for his resurrection body was not subject to death or aging or pain, nor the ravages of sin. It represented a new order. See, I think the same is true of the old creation. It is dying, but what will arise from it comes directly out of this old order, but it does so in such a way that all the impurities are burned away, and God infuses the creation itself with that which is eternal and is perfect. More when we come back. In Romans 8, Paul reminds us that we can look forward to a future glory that awaits us, and this glory not only applies to God's people, but to creation as well. All of creation groans in expectation of what is yet to come, when God returns to restore and redeem it to its original state. After the break, we'll discover what exactly the created order longs for and how believers are an integral part of that future promise. Thanks for listening. Have you heard that Back to the Bible Canada's new publication is coming next month? This year, we're launching a new ministry magazine that combines both our publications, Bible Matters and Life Matters. Sent out every second month, you can receive our new magazine that features articles from Dr. Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and many other pastors and authors. Speaking into the relevant issues of life and faith, this publication is sure to encourage, inform, and inspire. For more information, just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Let's look again at Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The word futility means the inability of something to fulfill its intended purpose. Creation is like the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's groaning, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. You remember that right after the fall, Adam is told that the ground will now bear thistles. 
Now that sin has entered the world, not only is the ground bearing weeds and thistles, but creation bears other things as well. It bears earthquakes and floods and droughts and more. It bears viruses and bacteria, fungi, and parasites. I want you to think about what creation was intended for and what it presently is. The best I can do is to give you an imperfect picture, but I think it'll do. When the first explorers came down the St. Lawrence River, they tell of it being so abundant with fish that they could literally lower a basket on a rope from the side of the boat into the water, then lift it up, and it would be full of fish. I mean, imagine that. A world that was so teeming with life, life would literally swim into your baskets. Well, today the St. Lawrence is a dead waterway. You can throw a fishing line in it all day and never get as much as a nibble. I know that's an imperfect analogy, but imagine how that seaway is groaning. It was created to hold, sustain, and multiply life. But now it has water, but the life is gone. I know what I'm describing is but a faint image, but imagine the garden before sin entered. It was not only full of life that would more than sustain Adam and Eve and their offspring, but it did precisely what it was designed for. I don't just mean that Adam had no role in the garden, that the garden would just form into a shape on its own. I don't think it would, for Adam had been called to cultivate it and manage it, but in the managing of it, there was no battle. The garden willingly cooperated, for that is what it was designed to do. But now, says our text, all of creation is subjected to futility or subjected to purposelessness. Now, how did that happen? Notice our verse speaks of the one who subjected it. It was God who cursed the creation because of Adam's sin, and therefore it is only God who can release creation from its futility. Now, in order to illustrate that, I've chosen an interesting quote from the late Ralph Winter, who is the founder of the U.S. Center of World Mission. He was speaking about poverty and the curse and how it is variously felt, and here's what he said. America today is a save-yourself society if there ever was one. But does it work? The underdeveloped societies suffer from one set of diseases, tuberculosis, malnutrition, pneumonia, parasites, typhoid, cholera, typhus, etc. Affluent America has virtually invented a whole new set of diseases, obesity, arteriosclerosis, heart disease, strokes, lung cancer, venereal diseases, cirrhosis of the liver, drug addiction, alcoholism, divorce, battered children, suicide, and murder. Take your choice. Labor-saving machines have turned out to be body-killing devices. Our affluence has allowed both mobility and isolation of the nuclear family, and as a result, our divorce courts, our prisons, and our mental institutions are flooded. In saving ourselves, we have nearly lost ourselves. Now, the reason I use that quote is not to showcase the plight of humanity, for we're going to do that tomorrow, but to showcase that as we attempt to curb the futility of nature, which we have in so many ways succeeded in doing, we find that we are experiencing unanticipated results. It's like squeezing a balloon in one place, only to find it bulging in another. Creation keeps on reverting back to futility. Now to verses 20 to 21 in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so in this verse, we see that which I alluded to earlier. God's plan for the creation is not to burn it down, throw it away and replace it, but rather to renew it, to restore it, and to make it that for which God created it. 
You find this theme in the Old Testament. On the one hand, Psalm 102 verses 25 to 26 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. That would seem to indicate that the world we now experience will cease to exist, which in fact is the case. But Isaiah 35, that famous chapter which promises that at the end of time when the ransomed of the Lord return with everlasting joy, the chapter describes the desert blossoming of the majesty of Mount Carmel, of waters breaking forth in the wilderness, of the burning sand becoming a pool and the thirsty ground becoming springs of water. You know, it's clear from the whole of Scripture that the creation as we know it is not only groaning in futility, but that it is dying. It will be rolled up like a garment, but there is a point of renewal where God will make all things new. Of this sin-cursed and dying creation, something new is about to give birth. So verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And it's here that we hear for the first time the word groaning. And to be sure, groaning indicates suffering, but this groaning is not a death rattle. It's a birth pang. You know, I have a humorous story I'd like to tell. A woman once told me that when her labor started, she looked at her husband and said, I changed my mind. Let's not do this. And he said, well, honey, it's a little too late for that discussion. I mean, we might change our mind, but this stuff is going to happen. It was no longer a matter of what they wanted. The die was cast. And you and I should know that not all pain is the same. It might be just as painful to be in labor as to suffer from cancer. But how can you compare the two? And that's why believers simply can't be pessimistic. We may be overwhelmed at nature out of control or about famine and starvation or about wars or about disease that devastates. But for those who believe, there is a vantage point that only we can have. And that's not the death rattle. That's the birth pang. And that brings me back to my image of the Apollo space capsules. They're not an analogy of what's to come. According to the Bible, our expectation is of a new heaven and a new earth. I love what William Hendrickson said of this matter. He said, not only will we be going to heaven, but heaven will, as it were, come down to us. That is, the conditions of perfection obtained in heaven will be found throughout God's gloriously rejuvenated universe. You know, sometimes believers ask the question, where will we live for eternity, on earth or in heaven? Well, in Revelation, John saw that the sea was gone. You know, in ancient days, the sea was an uncrossable barrier, but in his vision, the barrier between the dwelling place of God in heaven and the dwelling place of man on earth has been wiped away. The new Jerusalem came down to earth. Let's return to something I deliberately left unsaid earlier on. Verse 19 tells us that creation waits with eager longing for not its renewal or even the second coming of Jesus, which is surely the pivotal moment. But creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The point from Romans 8 is that we are made heirs with God, called upon to rule and reign over his creation. 
Creation awaits to be made new, and in this renewed state, it awaits for the sons and daughters of God to rule it as it surrenders its will to those who rule. And that's what Paul's point is in this passage. We as Christians, born of the Spirit, may be fighting with our lower nature and fighting to progress in holiness, but we do not fight with sin as if to do so were our final and ultimate goal. Our goal is to rule and reign over the works of God's hands. Now, why are we saying all of this? It's because apart from faith, all suffering and all evil and all futility and all disappointment, all of that is meaningless and but a sign of death. But in Christ, our sufferings are not the final cries in an empty universe, but they are the prelude to joy, to life, to freedom and fulfillment. This is why we groan, and this is why creation groans. Thanks for your message today, John. Uh, One question that I have, and it really has to do with, in some respects, where there's a tension sometimes between Christians and environmentalists. But what do you think is our responsibility as Christians to the environment around us? From the book of Genesis, we uh, read that Adam was given the role of caring for the earth. And unfortunately, it seems to me that we have allowed environmentalism to be something that's discussed only outside of Christian circles. Uh, We get this sense that we're concerned with the gospel and the saving news of Jesus, but with the care of the earth and the future of the earth, well, it's all going to burn baby anyway, so, you know, what do we care? And I think a more thorough discussion of Scripture shows us that God has in mind a future for this earth and a future for our role as, uh, as image bearers of God and as heirs also of creation. So I think that we need to open the door for a discussion to what role Christians should play in caring for the earth and the concerns that we have for a proper governance of the earth. Environmentalism, I want to argue, arises naturally out of the gospel. What a great study on why the creation groans. And what is it groaning for? I wonder how many of us have examined these words carefully and pondered the meaning of the glorious future that awaits all of creation. We may see the devastation and curse of the fall now, but how encouraging it is to know that one day, God's people will rightfully reign over a new heaven and a new earth. And that is what creation longs for. I hope today's message has blessed you as we continue to unpack the rich theological truths found in Romans chapter 8. Be sure to listen again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld will teach us on the believers groaning in our series, The Power of the Gospel. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Sharing the life-changing truths of the Bible is at the very core of everything we do as a ministry. It's the reason we go to work every day. It's not only an immense privilege, but also a great calling and responsibility. We believe that by showing people who God is and what He's done through the power of His Word, real transformation takes place. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. At Back to the Bible Canada, our passion is fueled by the dedication of friends and listeners just like you. Without your support, our efforts towards Bible teaching and engagement wouldn't be possible. 
Whether it's the radio broadcast online through our podcast and app or our magazine, we're hopeful that God has many great things planned in store for 2016. So if you want to get involved and help us grow, consider a financial gift today. For more information on partnering with this ministry, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.